Hello, I'm Dave Ellery. I'd like to welcome you to our words, pictures, and emotions program, Access Track. We're quite excited about sharing this new program with you because we believe its content is the best available concerning the development of healthy human resources. It's to understand how the mind functions and how to explain in the easiest possible way how we think to each of us so we can understand how to modify our own thoughts and behavior for a more successful, fulfilling, and happy life. It's for you and me, our families, friends, business and sporting associates, and children of all ages. It's not about gurus, pyramid power, religion, horoscopes, pseudo-intellectuals, or cult movements. At a time in our history when we're being bombarded with the search for something else, Access Track is a recipe for a back-to-basics approach to healthy human behavior for the 1980s and beyond. This program is a series of concepts by illustration, pictures and stories, and experiences, as well as instant feedback for you. It's designed to help you understand the self better and become aware of what's holding you back. You know, maybe not individually, but collectively, we're faced with real problems. Excluding gadgetry and material technology, from which we receive only short-term effects, the real problem is not outside, but within ourselves. It's quite easy to monitor high technology in a broad sense. The wheel was the tip of the iceberg in those days. And now mankind is standing at the base of the iceberg, seeing things like computerized households, relationships, money systems, national central computers, and next, voice prints. Just talk into the local supermarket checkout, and it will automatically debit your bank account. Convenient? Sure, but you tell me, is that the answer? Well, that solve a relationship with more downs than ups that started so beautifully. Or having too much month at the end of your money. If you can be brutally honest with yourself, it's usually possible to hear a still small voice within, indicating that things are not as they should be. We've spent our best time and effort in developing this recipe to accomplish growth and positive change in life that we sometimes dream about. And now, it's reality. It was not long ago that the understanding of the mind was exclusive to intellectuals and professors. Well, I can tell you, the news is on the street, and at last, it's all good. So view it with open-minded skepticism. Open enough to listen, skeptical enough to try it on and see if it fits. In developing this program, we conducted a series of surveys to determine certain reactions in people's awareness. To give you much food for thought, I'll repeat some here. The questions were, are you interested in having your future determined? And how would you like to determine your future, exactly how you desire it? Well, the results were as expected. As a normal human reaction to something we do not understand, it's simply not real to that person at that point in time. But when the penny drops, they can't wait to stand on top of a mountain and tell the world of their realization. It seems we must suffer in our own little way until we realize that the illusion of it all is we can and do determine our own futures. And going by a mountain of surveys, it's clear to say that 5% of the population make things happen.
20% of the population watch things happen, and 75% wonder what happened. I'm not interested in where you've been, only in where you're going. It's true that the mind is teleological, that's target-seeking. It's also true that we can't create any activity in this area without goals, and the all-elusive prime mover, desire. Without these two components, no matter how much willpower you have, this recipe will stay on the shelf collecting dust, along with your imagination. Does a shelf full of cookbooks necessarily make you a good cook? Now to obtain this expanded awareness, you must first look at your own self-awareness and some of the major components that influence nearly every action and reaction in your behavior. This is where we begin. Part one, taking stock. Turn to page seven in your workbook. This is the part in the program where we go beyond just words. This first part, taking stock, is for you to sit back and take a look at yourself through a different set of eyes, giving you your first glimpse of expanded awareness. Starting with self-awareness, what you will focus on is the idea that your life is divided into eight basic dimensions. Physical, family, financial, professional, social, spiritual, community support, and your mental dimension. This section is solely to establish a reference point of where you're at now, a picture of yourself to build on. Now turn to page eight and answer the questions on each of the eight dimensions. Only you see the results, so you can afford to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Stop the tape whilst completing the questionnaire. At this point, you should have finished the questionnaire and completed the graph on page 17. If you've been honest with yourself, then you're aware that there's room for improvement. Or did you get top marks? Remember, there's no judgment on results. As with other questionnaires in the program, it's designed only to give you feedback, a picture of yourself at this moment, to expand your thoughts of the person you really are. By doing this, you have a starting point, something to build on. Having established now, today, a picture of awareness in the eight basic dimensions, let's expand that awareness one step further by taking a look at what affects that picture. The three major components which affect every action and reaction in that picture are stress, self-image, and your self-esteem. Let's now take a look at stress, what it really means, and how it affects you. You're a unique individual. There's no one on this planet exactly like you. As a result, your behavior under any given circumstances will be different to any other person. What to you is a non-event to your neighbor could mean the end of the world. In the situations listed on page 19, reactions from nothing at all to extreme violence can result. For each of the circumstances listed, Circle the number which most accurately describes how you feel. If you come across a situation not experienced, imagine how you'd react. This questionnaire is on page 19. Stop the tape 
whilst doing the exercise. Research today is showing us that stress in the individual is playing a far more important role in human behavior and health than previously thought. As the world becomes more complex and demanding, the body and mind has to match, not compete with, but match the increase in activity if it's to survive. There are two basic types of stress. Desire in the positive, which is beneficial stress or optimism and fear in the negative, which is adverse stress, closely linked with pessimism. Only recent years have shown a scientific backup to this. Scientists have discovered that in your brain there are neurotransmitters, little locks for which there are keys. The keys are made of chemicals, opiates called peptides, enteflins, endorphins. They're a hormone-like substance secreted in the brain. For what? to fulfill an emotional thought. Interesting, isn't it? Thoughts, emotion, electrochemical. So you have locks inside your head, receptor pools, and they want to be fed. Now, in the case of the optimist, when the going gets tough, this receptor pool develops a powerful thirst. Tracy Wickham, last lap in the 400 meters freestyle, only thinking to win. The thirst increases. What happens? The pituitary gland releases endorphin. It mixes with the adrenaline, kills the pain. The entephalins give her a natural high and the power to go. Endorphins are so powerful that in childbirth, a woman in labor begins to secrete them so she can get through a tough experience to a great expectation. Only she gets more. So then if you're pessimistic, take your choice. Your receptors are still thirsty for the endorphin and entephalin, but your pessimism has stopped production. If you cannot get them naturally, you'll go to the outside. The opiates you'll get will not be created by the great chemist. They'll be created by the chemist at the bar. They'll be created by the chemist up the nose with a little cocaine. They'll be created by opium or marijuana. So if you want to get the unnatural high, be prepared for the cause and effects and the side effects. Not so long ago, stress was associated with senior executive types in the high-pressure world of big business. It used to be thought that stress resulted from an inability to cope with more than a certain amount of pressure. But this is not so. Stress affects people in all walks of life, whether under the pressure from responsibilities in a top executive position, or lazing on the beach with nothing more to do than soak up the sun. The causes and effects of stress are only now beginning to be fully understood. During your lifetime, all the experiences you go through are stored away in your subconscious memory for future reference. But more importantly, the way you were affected, your emotional response, is also recorded at the same time. This has been proven many times by subjects under deep hypnosis, who are able to recall the minutest detail of the most insignificant experiences. Even people undergoing certain types of brain surgery have relived long forgotten experiences in vivid detail when some area of the brain used for memory has been activated by a probe. Some brain surgery requires only a local anesthetic, 
thus leaving the patient awake. The point is, we store emotions as well as experiences. It's important here to note that you never forget anything that's happened to you, even the tiniest detail, taste, touch, smell, sight and sound, all the senses. But more importantly, you record emotion and sensation, especially pain sensation. Even more significant is this. Every detail stored, and they all are, is stored with a recall instruction for future use. A pleasurable experience is label for recall. An insignificant experience is label not required. A pain experience, do not recall. Of course, there are many degrees of recall attached to different experiences, but also to parts of an experience. How does this affect you? Let's try an example. Alan Johnson, single, 28. Nice apartment, new car, good job. He gets on well with his mates, everything going for him. Almost everything. Alan has a big problem. He's got a hang-up with women, has difficulties every time. He gets embarrassed, lost for words, that tight feeling in his stomach. Once in a while he gets lucky and it lasts a week or two. But still, it doesn't work out. He knows there's a problem but cannot figure it out. We see the effect, but what is the cause? When Alan was nine, he badly sprained an ankle playing football at school. Sitting there covered in mud, a well-meaning teacher trying to bring a smile to the young boy's face says, you won't get anywhere with the girls looking like that. This is dynamite. Unknowingly, those words from the teacher have just wrecked Alan's potential future relationships with the girls. Now this may seem hard to believe, but what happened? Alan's subconscious went on immediate alert when the pain hit from his ankle. Now trying to protect Alan from another similar experience, his subconscious memory grabs at all the information surrounding the incident. Pain equals slippery ground. Pain equals moving too fast. Pain equals getting along with the girls. Pain equals loose bootlace. At the time of the accident, Alan was only consciously aware of the pain and how to stop it, totally unaware that his subconscious in doing its job was rapidly filing away all the other details. The pain experience is filed under definitely not for recall, but his mind wishing to protect against a similar future event registers getting along with girls as a potential pain producer, along with slippery ground, etc. Later on in life, as he repeatedly fails to succeed in any relationships, the situation worsens due to his self-talk. It'll never work. I always freeze up. A hundred phrases just like these will reinforce his subconscious view that girls are potential pain. It's quite reasonable to ask why certain incidents, or parts of an incident, should be completely blocked from recall. Keep track with the pictures on pages 20 and 21 in the workbook. The key to understanding the mind's behavior in this way is your subconscious cannot tell the difference between an actual experience or one vividly imagined.
under deep hypnosis, with a previously forgotten traumatic experience revealed, you relive the event totally, including the actual pain and fear emotions, as if it's really happening. No wonder the mind does not want you to remember such experiences. How does this affect you? And why does it happen? Well, day by day and minute by minute, even though you're not conscious of it, the mind tries to protect you. It does this by searching memory for all information on the event or experience to be encountered, and then reveals it all so you can take the best course of action. This is true for all situations, from picking up a pencil to flying a spacecraft. To help prepare you in dangerous situations, the mind recalls a similar past event. But if severe enough and labeled not for recall, only the incidents surrounding the pain experience are recalled. Now the reason for Alan's problem with women becomes apparent. His subconscious generates failure to avoid what it believes is a possible pain experience. One additional point here. The subconscious does not differentiate between physical or emotional pain. It acts during both with equal power. In everyday life, your mind is constantly storing all physical and emotional responses. In a stressful situation, whether desire stress or fear stress, your mind plays back, through feelings and emotions, those very same responses from a similar past event. This process is often called the automatic response mechanism of the human being. The fight or flight response, recognized in both human and animal when considering life-death situations. The difference between human and animal, humans continually develop new automatic responses through the reasoning and learning process. Thus, in going through life, like it or not, you're building a fully indexed library of future events. A good example of how this works in your favor is driving a car or riding a bicycle. When learning, every movement needs conscious thought. But in a very short time, the mind learns all the required actions, and it becomes automatic. The mind is still controlling all the movements, but it becomes unnecessary to think consciously about such details. When discussing stress, most people seem to believe it's due to the circumstances we find ourselves in. We now see this is not the case. Let's take another look at beneficial stress. Desire in the positive. Imagine you're about to play your favorite sport. What happens? Energy flows to the muscles. Adrenaline is released to keep you going. There's a sense of eager anticipation or optimism. You experience an uplift. It feels great. This is beneficial stress, helping and urging you on to perform an enjoyable experience. Now let's take a look at the effects of adverse stress, fear in the negative. You've been late to work a few times. Last week the boss called you into his office and gave you a severe reprimand. You took it badly. The rest of the day things did not go too well. You were tense, had bad feelings towards the boss because he didn't understand. Today, you're late again. The boss leaves a note on your desk. It reads, 
See me in my office at 10 a.m. This is dynamite. Your mind instantly tries to prepare you for a coming event, scanning memory for a similar past experience. There's one. Only last week, you had a very unpleasant emotional response to a meeting with the boss about timekeeping. Mind says to itself, I was late this morning. Boss wants to see me. And then, there was a similar experience last week. I'll now prepare for the anticipated coming experience. Emotions and physical responses are recalled. Nervous tension, tightening of the muscles, anxious feelings, etc. 10 a.m. outside the boss's office. You're sweating a little. Body tense, nervous. You walk into the office, throat a little dry. The boss looks up, smiles, and says, Glad you popped in. I just wanted to congratulate you on the talk you gave at the staff meeting yesterday. Wondered if you could do the same at our southern branch next week. What, you reply, but didn't you... Uh, I thought... Yeah, of course, I'd be happy to. Thanks. This is the power that lies hidden within. This is fear in the negative. It was not being late that caused your response. It wasn't the boss's note. That only said, see me in the office at 10. It all came from information stored in your memory bank. Being late and the boss's note were just triggers which started your mind on its automatic path of preparation and action planning based on a previous experience. Are we then just automatic beings with no control over our reactions? No, we are not. We have the ability to choose our responses and emotions if we understand what causes them. Ways to understand our inner selves and methods of controlling and eliminating negative stress are covered later in the program. We must now continue taking stock and move on to another important aspect of ourselves. Self-image. The experience of extensive travel can provide true awareness of the abundance in today's world. Television and magazines show some of it, but you only see a fraction of the real thing. Compare the animal in the photograph with a visit to the zoo, or compare the holiday brochure with the actual trip. It's just the same with you and me. But it's amazing how few people know who they really are. In order to discover and fully understand the true abundance you have inside, it's not enough just to read or hear about it. You've got to take the trip inside and experience it. A closer look at self-image gives a clearer picture of the real you. So let's start that trip inside with the self-image chart on page 23 of the workbook. Stop the tape now until you complete the chart. Like the other questionnaires, the one you've just done is designed to give an insight into other people as well as yourself. To understand others and know where they're coming from, that's empathy, you can better understand yourself. You can sit back justifying your thoughts and actions. Or you can constantly challenge yourself, your values, your awareness, your understanding in an effort to grow. You live in a unique world of your own making. The way you see the world is a product of all the thoughts you ever had. 
as no two people could experience exactly the same thoughts, this becomes obvious. Furthermore, you're far more unique than you probably realize. And so measuring yourself against others is mostly invalid and a waste of time. The comparison to make is with the real you at the inner self level. Take a look at pages 24 and 25 as we continue. Because of the revolution in mass communication, we tend to think we know it all, or at least most of it. Information is thrust upon us and seems to confirm our view of the world. We think we know all there is to know. We believe ourselves to be well informed. Rubbish. All this fantastic information is just a one-way communication of someone else's idea of reality. You've slowly but surely been conditioned over the years, right from birth, that this is so and that is so. What is the truth about the world you live in today? How do you decide what's good or bad, right or wrong, true or false? Imagine you own a small factory employing ten people making furniture. You're in the office, happy with full order books. The operation is running along nicely. One of your machine operators comes in. There's no power. The machines have stopped. We cannot do any work. At this moment, you have two options. One, pay the men off and close the company. No machines equals no furniture equals no income. Or, two, communicate. Are the lights still working? I think so. Yes, they are. Good. That means we've still got power. Must be a blown fuse. Let's go fix it and get the show on the road. Okay, so the example may be a little unrealistic. But look closely. You received some information. You did not completely accept the statements as true. To get at the reality of the situation, you simply started a process of communication. Now, because of the communicating process, you were able to arrive at the truth through discussion and feedback. This provided new information which painted a new picture of the world you were living in. The point is, without realizing it, the vast majority of people today are having information of all kinds literally thrust upon them as truth mostly by so-called experts. But we have no opportunity to communicate with the provider of the information. The tragedy is, the mountain of information dumped on you is presented in such a convincing manner. You're led to believe it is true. Now there are two types of communication. One-way communication and two-way communication. It's been said that good communication is an exchange. But what has this to do with self-image? Your self-image is a deep-seated picture of yourself. It includes all those tiny little details only you know about. Ironically, you're not consciously aware of most of it. Your self-image is very important because it governs how you behave in all situations. It tells you whether or not you're capable of doing things. It also tells you what type of person you are and what you can be in the future. Where is your self-image? It's buried deep in your subconscious. 
It's buried as deep as the information controlling your heartbeat and is essentially inaccessible to you except in certain situations explained later. Although not aware of your self-image on a day-to-day -day basis, it does nonetheless determine your every action and reaction, from boiling an egg to complex behavior patterns. Its effect is seen in the billion ways you express yourself. What does it consist of? Remember we said earlier, you never forget anything. The same is true about all things ever said or suggested to you, plus all assumptions you've ever made about yourself. Whatever you've accepted as being true about yourself during your whole lifetime is held in storage as part of your self-image. How does it affect you? Every minute of every hour of every day, your self-image is consulted before you perform the slightest function or say the simplest of words. It tells you, you can or you cannot do this thing or that thing. It's even working this very moment as you listen to these words, telling you whether or not to accept, reject, or consider them. Now this is important. Your self-image creates the limitations you place on yourself. 